You're listening to the Upswell Podcast. This podcast was recorded on ancient country of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation, who remain the spiritual and cultural custodians of this land. I'd like to acknowledge their continuing connection to country and express gratitude to elders past and present for their strength and creativity. Welcome back to the Upswell podcast. This is part two of my conversation with Stuart Barnes, author of a new book of poetry called Light to the Lark. If you haven't listened to it already, make sure to catch our part one wherever you get your podcasts, as well as reading Stu's notes on form on the Upswell website and ordering his poetry collection, which is available for purchase now. Someone can say something quite traumatic um, and then you can take it back and, you know, make it ironic, make it satirical. Um, and I think there's a lot of moments like that. It's, it's threaded throughout this collection, this this playfulness, but also trauma. Mm. Do you see a link between between humour and trauma? I do. Um, it In putting this collection together it became a very conscious thing how do i you know how might this collection uh that that talks about um trauma how might it be more appealing to people or more palatable and one way um was uh oh, sorry one thing i thought about was um was humor and i've you know i mean i don't think I, I'm a comedian. I think I do have a good sense of humour, but I've never, never thought myself to be um, humorous within my poems. But some people have mentioned that about this collection, and um, and and I'm I'm pleased because um, I I'm glad that there's that balance of humour and trauma. There's also a nice sort of half rhyme of humour and trauma too, um, mm, mm. which is which is <laughs> great. quite lovely. But I, yeah, I, I some people might want to read a collection that is all about trauma. Um, but I must say that when I was editing the collection, um, I certainly felt the uh, intensity of some of the poems, and then to turn the page and then to read a a humorous poem or a poem with some humour in it was, you know, it had that effect of of, uh, of lightening the mood for me. So I hope I hope the readers uh, of the of the book will feel the same way. And and yeah, I guess it, I've always thought in life it's important to uh, acknowledge trauma, um, but to also try to. If you can't have a sense of humour about trauma, and I think maybe that takes time, I know it did for me to be able to um, uh, to be able to write about trauma in a in a particular way. To um, yeah, I, I I do think it's important to um, well, it doesn't have to be humour, but but to be able to write about it in a way that is. Uh, Sort of turning to the words of Plath here when she was speaking about writing about difficult experiences and them, them not being a narcissistic, uh, shut box, mirror, inward looking, um, 
And that's what I've tried to do with these poems. I've tried to make them uh, with the uh, more personal poems about trauma be poems that um, might hopefully appeal to a broader audience. That's really interesting that um, you said as well with some of them, you didn't realise that it was, you know, being taken in this humorous, people reading humour where Mm. it might not have been. And I, I wonder if it's, you know, I mean, Robert Frost talks about this idea of unexpectedness in poetry, needing that sense of unexpectedness. And I think these poems are full of unexpected turns, particularly, you know, if I come back to those enjambments, you don't expect the word to continue. Um, You know, you've got these kind of hyphenated um, words. um, And I think maybe that surprise, that kind of, um, oh, um, that happens a lot in these poems. Sometimes you laugh, you know, sometimes humour, I guess, has that kind of shock value as well. And um, uh, at least for me, there were so many lines that just surprised me. Oh, thank you. I'm, 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 ple- I'm pleased. Thank you. It's, I, I, I suppose I, I, I'm now, th- as, as you said, that I'm thinking of those enjammed hyphenated words as, you know, the, the, the line being the joke and then what's over the line in the next line being sort of the the punch punchline mm. yeah. yeah um and yes yes to to go back to what you said about frost and expectation um i i love reading poetry where i i don't know what's going to come next after that mm. line you know I, I like to be surprised and delighted and to have that <gasps> wow Okay. Exactly. Totally unexpected. Great. Love it. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. And it's the same with a really predictable rhyme, isn't it? You know, if you know, oh, okay, this end rhyme is going to be, I know that they're going to say cry and then they're going to say try or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> um, sigh. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It's the same with a really basic melody. You don't want to be bored by um mm what comes next you want you want to be surprised that's right you want an exciting chord change you want mm. an exciting shift in vocal for as long as i can remember there was always music playing in my parents house at my grandparents house at friends houses we played a lot of instruments when we were younger and you know it's uh there is a lot of music not only in the forms but also um you know, more explicitly, um, music of The Cure, Kate Bush, Belinda Carlisle, um, Alice Coltrane, um, I think there's some Nina Simone, you know, like a lot of, a, a lot of influences in there. And, uh, you know, that just comes from still, you know, always listening to music. It, it makes me want to hear um, another poem that has a very musical um, title, um, Moon's Etude. I had to look up what an etude was, um, you know, kind of I got the sense it's a, it's a, a piece of music that's written for practising, practising yes. maybe a, some kind of musical skill. Yeah. Yes. Um, what, was the, what was the thinking behind that, that idea of um, an etude poem? Mm, okay. So um, uh, I was uh, going through Instagram stories and, I think came across, you know, someone was maybe playing Chopin's etudes in, mm-hmm. in their stories. Uh, I hope I've got that right. <laughs> and uh, just the idea of uh, the moon practicing 
came to mind straight away. Um, I think about the moon a lot. And I wanted to, uh, I mean, there's no, uh, there are very strict uh, constraints with this poem. There are um, eight couplets uh, that represent the eight phases of the moon. Um, there are very, uh, there are five um, syllables per line and there are particular end rhymes as well. So I wanted to practice something that for me was quite difficult trying to, you know, within those constraints. Uh, so the moon's attitude is as much Stu's attitude as the moon's attitude. Um, you know, sometimes I create these constraints and then halfway through writing the poem, think, what have you done? <laughs> but I'll always, I'll, I'll always finish the poem. And th this particular poem went through a number of versions and, and was rejected a number of times. And I, I realized that there was something, uh, not quite right about the first couple of, um, uh, couplets in particular. Um, so I, I reworked it and, and sent it out and was very grateful when it was published at Cordite. But it was, yeah, it was, so it was, yeah, as much about, um, my, my, yeah, my practice. Moon's Etude. Pink balloon, clued wool, unsmooth supper plate, sinker of cliche in cumulus seas. I loose jewelries, unlike satin. A gold-fattened lingerer. Monsieur Aloof. Again you finger-point. Murderer. Oof. When you're full, you're full of yourself. You blaze. I routinely skate closer to the proto-stars. I am not going through a phase. I love that last line, Stu. That's, that's my favourite line. Um, Thanks. And... You're talking about this was sort of Stu's attitude as well. It's the moon's voice, but would you say that's also... To me, that last line feels like that might have been something you've said or wanted to say to someone. Uh, yes. Well, particularly when <laughs> when I've said to certain people that I'm gay and they said, no, you're not, you're going through a phase. Uh, so uh, the moon is also, uh, as we were talking about the other day, uh, the moon is also, a, you know, the queerest mirror ball um, yes. in, in in a different poem in in this book. Um, and the book actually starts with the phrase "no moon," and then in a in a poem not long after that, there's the new moon spark. So um, the moon is certainly growing through the collection. It doesn't adhere to its, you know, to the moon's conventional phases. Um, but I wanted to, I suppose, address in Moon's Etude, um, cliches about the moon, um, you know, that it's cold, that it's, you know, light is bright, but it's not obviously gold like the sun's light. It's, you know, it, it's not warm. Um, there's actually a, a really wonderful poem that puns on over. Um, there's the idiom to be over the moon and there's a fantastic poem called I'm Over the Moon by American poet Brenda Shaughnessy. Um, and uh, 
I might just quickly share one small phrase from her poem, yeah. if, if that's okay. Um, Absolutely. Her poem ends, you change shape and turn away, letting night solve all night's problems alone. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful poem. And I, I guess I wanted to write a, a poem to addressing these ideas of um, the, the maid and the mother and the crone. Uh, not my words, words that I was brought up in classics learning um, in uh, particular uh, mythologies about the moon and um, so the you know the, the first couplet pink balloon clued wall unsmooth supper plate uh, sort of addressing those those cliches um, I'm interested in different mythologies about the moon um, I, uh, and moon, moon moon gods and goddesses and uh, I was actually reading last night I think there are in some in, in some religions some moon deities that are agender uh, but I have to double check that but that's um, I think there are also some that are male and female um, and are therefore uh, sorry and are also seen as um, as transgender which I you know is just fascinating um, this poem was actually inspired by uh, an article that I read apparently the moon is moving approximately four centimeters away from earth every year so you know we we put so much onto the moon and you know there are so many idioms about the moon and we beg so much we ask so much of the moon um, and you know it's it's kind of doing its own thing and moving away from us and <laughs> you know yeah. but there's also you know the you know well, what's going to happen to the earth eventually when when that when it's so far away um you know what what in terms of uh climate and uh ocean yeah i feel like there is that kind of queerness to um a lot of these things to mythology to astrology um how it's spoken about today as well um yeah i guess do you have any more thoughts about those that relationship mm, i uh, first of all I, I i mean i've reclaimed the word queer um it you know being called a queer at high school was really hurtful um and i love that there's a show called you know a series called queer as folk you know that reclamation of the word is fabulous um and it, yeah it took me a long time uh to be able to do that or rather to be able to do it comfortably um and i am interested in in queering language and queering objects that or queer queering things that are thought of as um, a thought of in a particular way, and the, the moon is one of those things. Um, so when I refer to it as as the queerest mirror ball, I mean I'm I'm sort of when I lived in Melbourne, my experience of the moon was a very uh, it was different to my experience of the moon here. Um, we were talking about this the other day, and I was saying it was stepping out of a club and seeing the moon, and my experience in central Queensland has been going and sitting on the beach and watching the moon rise, two very yeah. different experiences. 
And it's a little bit further away now as well. It is a little bit further away. <laughs> <coughs> but I, I am interested in the queering of language and the querying mm. of language and of things and objects and and people and the and the playfulness of that, the playfulness around queer and camp. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I find it uh, interesting and... Uh, I feel that I have a lot more confidence doing that these days because I was told I wasn't allowed to be camp and I wasn't allowed to be queer and I wasn't allowed to be a fag or a poof and and when when you when you hear those things for a long time you yeah you are uh, you decide sometimes not to be those things mm. And and you said you kind of you faced um, also um, comments about being a good gay as well, right? And you've got that poem, um, "How to Be a Good Gay in a Small Town," because you're you're originally from Hobart, but um, mm. you're um, in Rockhampton now in Queensland. Mm. Um, so could I could you speak on that experience a bit? I mean that that poem in particular, it feels like the speaker almost has to refuse um, their identity and almost self-deprecate as an act of survival. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's interesting because uh, uh, people I know who have been outsiders to the gay community, and I'm mm. air-quoting, uh, because I, I, struggle, I do at times struggle with the concept of queer community. Um, I've had a very interesting experience here in central Queensland. The, the LGBT community here has not been accepting or welcoming at all. And as I t talk about in the poem, how to be a good gay in a small town, uh, you have to be a particular kind of gay, which is a gym uh, going, meth injecting uh, <laughs> gay man, which is not... Yeah. I don't go to the gym and I don't use crystal meth. Uh, so <laughs> I don't go on dates. Um, <laughs> so that that poem actually came in quite a rush. It had been the, the thoughts, the ideas, the inspirations for that poem had been building for a very long time and pouring out in a rush. And I was very angry when I wrote that poem because... I've heard for a very long time from other gay men that, well, you're not a very good gay, are you? You know, you're you're too fat, you're too thin, you don't smoke cigarettes, you don't take drugs, you do take drugs, you're not wearing the right sunglasses, and just this <laughs> it's almost constant judgment from the gay community. And and you know, you have the gay community talking about, oh, we're judged harshly by people outside the gay community. Well, I'm I'm writing in this poem about the judgment within the gay community and mm. and the experience or my experience in Rockhampton. It, it, you know, the, there's this idea that you have to be a sort of pumped up, straight acting kind of gay. Why do you think that is? It's kind of interesting, you know, as you're talking about, you know, fighting to make this community, but then sort of the judgment coming from within that. I mean, what, what do you think gives rise to, to that kind of behaviour? I... I suspect one reason maybe that a number of the guys who live here haven't 
lived beyond here. Uh, Central Queensland is deeply homophobic. So, uh, you know, like all of us, we're shaped by where we live and our experiences. And when I've uh, met guys here, uh, I mean, I went on a date with one guy who was a miner. And, um, I mean, I have views about mining that <laughs> we won't go into that now. But <laughs> <laughs> when he asked me what I did and I said, I'm a poet, he we were at a restaurant. He literally stood up. Like, our food had just arrived. He stood up, didn't say a word, and walked out. Um, so, I, <laughs> friends and I have joked, you know, is, is that maybe he thinks I'm a poor poet or he thinks I'm pretentious? I, I don't know. Whatever people yeah, think what? comes with being a poet. So um, Yeah. How does that make you feel then going and sitting down to write another poem? I actually get a kick out of writing a poem out of those out of those experiences. I mean, there's there is you know I, I must say there's that that sense of being in control on the page when you're writing it. But I, I I'm not I'm not controlling or manipulating those words to suit me. I mean they they're very um, those experiences are depicted. They're quite. They're, they're real experiences and they're depicted mm. honestly in those poems, especially in How to Be a Good Gay in a Small Town. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of that, that honesty, um, that vulnerability and sometimes a, a feeling of um, something very raw as well in these, mm. in these poems. Um, and I wanted to ask you, um, so you've experienced um, sexual violence uh, mm. and you've written about that in this collection. Yes. Um, can you tell me what was the response you got um, from people when you did speak out about this and write about this? Okay, sure. So uh, a number of years ago, I wrote a memoir and sent that out, and that was about my experiences of sexual violence. I'll just mention this briefly. And uh, there was a fair bit of positive feedback about the quality of the writing, but there were also comments such as, we already have one Christus Chulkus, we don't need another, meaning there's only, there can only be space, there's only room in Australia for one queer writer, for, for, for one gay male writer. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know, astonishing. Um, also, some really overt homophobia. Um, in in rejection letters about that. Uh, when it came to writing poetry, I mean, I was just flat out told, you know, you shouldn't be writing about this. This isn't something that should be written about in poetry. And and part of the reason I was writing about it in poetry was because I, you know, I was uh, seeing a, a really wonderful psychologist in Melbourne. I still see a wonderful psychologist up here. And it was a way of, um, of yeah, addressing... Um, those experiences of sexual violence, um, in, you know, in a, again, in, in fixed forms, in a contained, uh, safe way, in a safe environment. And, uh, I'm happy to say that over, over time, that's actually changed. And when poems have been published now about my experiences of sexual violence, um, the responses are quite warm. And I've actually had some people sending DMs and saying, you know, I just wanted to check in, are you okay? You know, like, 
and, and, that, and that's really lovely. I've also had men, uh, younger gay guys, contact me and and say, you know, thank you for writing and publishing that poem. I've had a similar experience, um, and one or two of them have said, you know, that they've never told anyone about that before. And I was first sexually assaulted in my teenage years, then in Melbourne when I was 18, and then several years ago uh, in Melbourne, but while I was living in Rockhampton and um, speaking out over the, uh, speaking about, about my first rape in uh, 1996, the first person I told called me a liar, and that was a, that was a partner. Uh, so that, that, you know, uh, you know, this, this was meant to be the person who, you know, really loved me and who I really loved. And, you know, yeah. I was quite, I guess, uh, I was expecting a very different response. Um, and responses have varied over the years and it's been a sharp, steep, steep learning curve. Um, I, I, I would prefer if people don't know what to say. To actually say, I don't know what to say when I tell them. And I've always been quite open with friends and partners and my family about these experiences. And some, some of those people still tell me not to write about those experiences or to talk about them. And that's always made me, those comments have always made me more determined to, uh, to write about those experiences. Um, in the hope that I may reach uh, others, uh, who have, uh, experienced sexual violence and that that, that sharing may, I, I hope that that may help people in some way. When I was, when I was 18 and I was raped, the only experience that I knew of was Tori Amos' experience. Uh, which she sings about in Me in a Garm and, and refers to in other songs. And uh, there was no experience of a man. There's, a, there's an American poet, Dustin Brookshire, um, who wrote a chapbook called To the One Who Raped Me, which I um, refer to in a poem in Like to the Lark. And uh, there's, there's very little on YouTube. Um, I remember coming back to Rockhampton after that experience in Melbourne several years ago and calling a local hotline for um, for men who'd been assaulted. And the woman on the hotline actually said, "Oh no, oh no, love that can't have happened to you. You're a you're a guy." <laughs> and this this was a line set up for men to call. The message has been for decades that you know we don't want to hear about this. So. I don't, I'm not writing about it to be rebellious. I'm writing about it because I need to. I'm writing about it because I believe that it it, it helps me and it may help other people. And uh, and I, but I try to write about those experiences in a way that you know breaks down uh, the words around, you know, that that uh, the sort of the glossary of sexual violence. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, and it's it's so powerful when you do um, write about it um, in these poems, um, and it, it's yeah you can see how people um, 
you know, it's as if they prefer to live in a world where these things don't exist and aren't spoken about and there's this um, failure to, to listen um, to you when you do speak about them, but it's so important to do mm. it because we need to know, we need to talk about it. Um, we can't go on pretending it doesn't exist. And that's just, I mean, the fact that you called a men's helpline, mm. you've got that kind of response is just, is baffling. But yeah, um, yeah this sense that people can't see what what is actually, um, you know, a, a factor in, the, in our reality right now. Mm. They're just blind to that. Yeah, look, it, it, it surprises me, but... Um... Yeah, people are people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I'll ask you this final question. Um, I wanted to know what is a book that you think everyone needs to read once? Okay. That book is uh, Sylvia Plath's Ariel, the Restored Edition, uh, which came came out several years ago. Um, so it it differs significantly from the first UK and US versions, which were edited by Ted Hughes. Um, as Plath and Hughes' daughter, Frida Hughes, uh, wrote in her foreword uh, to the book, Ariel, the restored edition, exactly follows the arrangement of my mother's last manuscript as she left it. Um, it's... I think it's a masterclass in in form and transformation. Um, there's an incredible compression to Plath's writing, um, but there's also an amazing expansion um, of thought. Um, there's also really astonishing creative energy and grit um, in the collection as well. Um, but one of the main reasons I love it is um, it, it begins with the word love and ends with the word spring. Um, Mm. And um, there's also, if I might add, there's a piece of, there's an essay um, called Plath Traps by uh, Felicity Plunkett, who I mentioned earlier, who's a poet, critic and a close friend. Now, um, Plath Traps was published online at Sydney Review of Books and it was shortlisted for this year's Wallara Digital Literary Awards. Um, I'd also, if I can just have a sort of part Part B to your question and say that I would not only recommend Ariel, the restored edition, but also uh, Plath Traps. Um, mm. Felicity's been reading and studying Plath for many years and uh, in Plath Traps she discusses, among many other things, Plath's writing, um, Plath and ideas of biography around Plath and also Heather Clark's recent biography of Plath, which is called uh, Red Comet. It's a really amazing essay and I, I really recommend people uh, read that and and read Ariel, the restored edition. Fantastic. I'm yeah. I'm really looking forward to to reading that essay now. It's great to um have the insights you know when you approach the work someone who's been studying for all those years um mm, you know, have that closeness yes. yeah um well thank you so much Stu, for your readings um and for all of the the fascinating conversation that we've had um it's been such a pleasure um 
Light to the Lark is going to be published by Upswell um, and it will be released uh, on the 2nd of February in 2023 um, and you can pre-order it now. So uh, that's what I'll be doing. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Misha. Look, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been wonderful meeting and talking with you and it's been wonderful to to share, uh, yeah, some of Light to the Lark's um, history. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you as well, Stuart. It's been fantastic. The music in this podcast was Mark Isaac's composition, Have One More, played by Simon Tedeschi for the ABC recording, Tender Earth. You can follow Upswell Publishing on Instagram at UpswellPublishingAU and on Twitter at UpswellP. Subscribe and listen to more episodes on Spotify and on Apple Music.